To be. Or not to be. That, that is, is the, the question. question. There's a wonderful quote that Shakespeare's words march like heartbeats. Get Brexit done. Yes, we can. Take back control. To be or not to be. It is a consummation rest. Devoutly to be wished. Don't breathe. To die, to sleep. Breathe, rest. There's this underlying rhythm, which is like the heartbeat. It's a kind of pattern of us. When inexperienced actors have to tackle Shakespeare, they often find it daunting. So they call in voice and text consultants. They're a sort of verse therapists, and they specialise in demonstrating how Shakespeare's language can give help and direction to the actor. It's a sort of code that works through rhythm and the sound of the words. So in this episode of To Be or Not To Be, we talk to some of the most prominent verse experts in British theatre. Is there anything about the rhythms and the sounds of Hamlet's most famous soliloquy which can give us clues about what it all means? When I work with directors, I always warn them that my approach encourages actors to, to be directed by Shakespeare. And some of them go, wow, that's brilliant. Slightly whimsical, but brilliant, because it's true. He's directing you from beyond the grave. Some of them go, no way, I'm not sharing credit with him. Giles Taylor is a highly experienced stage actor and also a text and rhetoric consultant for the RSC and other theatre groups. You have to remember that theatre was the only uh, spoken oral form. Otherwise it was your bear baiting and your um, cockfighting and all that sort of thing. My theory is that the groundlings, the uneducated, illiterate groundlings, would have as good, as developed an ear for verse as the educated people because they were so used to hearing it and the effects because the Elizabethans going to theatre often, I mean, you know, it's thought three or four times a week. Now, as modern people, we don't, stand a chance you need to work very hard to develop your ear and verse because we're not exposed to it enough my approach is all about the verse and the rhythm and in terms of iambic pentameter this terrifying phrase that everybody gets a bit windy about an iamb is a metric foot a rhythmic foot a building block of rhythm and it goes didum it's thought of as being based on the heartbeat all music came from drumming Drumming came from the heartbeat. There's a wonderful quote that Shakespeare's words march like heartbeats. To be or not to be. Weak stress with strong stress. Five of those pentameter make the iambic pentameter. So famous line, if music be the food of love, play on. Perfect iambic pentameter. Which literally is like winding up a toy and going to the end. It's saying, keep telling the story, keep going, keep going. The ambit, because it's the heartbeat, is about chest and heroism and certainty. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more, or close the wall up with our English dead. You can hear, this is a hero rallying troops. An iambic pentameter is usually ten syllables long. But here's the thing. If you look at the first line of to be or not to be, surely the most famous pentameter in all of English literature it's actually longer than that. It's 11 syllables. It has an extra unstressed syllable at the end of the line. And Giles thinks that's highly significant. If Hamlet had said to be or not to be, that is the quest. There's no way he's going to die. It's too positive, but you can hear. He doesn't, he says, to be or not to be, that is the question. 
and rhythmically it smudges it. What it does in terms of the iambic, the strong, the chesty, the heroic, the certain, is it buckers up that rhythm. And what he does to show a character who's emotionally or psychologically upset or thrown or off balance, it, it, it blurs the certainty, that iambic heart, heroic thing. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. In fact, the first four lines of the speech all have 11 syllables and unstressed endings. Or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing... End them. As the speech progresses, the effect ceases, and the speech reverts to mostly ten-syllable lines. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. And thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought. It's a classic example of Shakespeare directing the actor from beyond the grave, giving clues about Hamlet's mental state as he moves through the speech, just by manipulating the number of syllables in the line. The more certain he gets, the more iambic it becomes. So this is a man very quickly going, OK, come on, think. Think it through. Work it out. You're clever. You can do this. It, it, here's the sense, the words, and then there's this sound effect, this rhythm going on that upholds this, absolutely. But I, it just grows and grows, and I have a group called Bardolatry, uh, and we read and just wallow in Shakespeare. We cook and we drink a great deal, and we're allowed during Bardolatry to go, OK, can we stop? I have no idea who we're talking about now. I'm completely lost. Who's, who's her mother, and why is he so angry? You know, Or we can go, can we read that scene again? It's really good. You know, and occasionally, I don't think that's by Shakespeare, that bit. That's shit. <laughs> you know, all that. Sarah Case is another highly experienced voice and text coach who's worked at Shakespeare's Globe, and the Central School of Speech and Drama. I absolutely hated Shakespeare at school, and I think a lot of us did. It was partly, well, a lot of it was how it was taught. It was very dry and dull. And, and then as an actor, I started to go, oh, this is rather good. Um, and then when I started to teach, I had to really unpick it, and that's when I got incredibly um, obsessed by it, I suppose, and absolutely love it. It's the doing of it. And as a voice coach, as a voice tutor, um, my, my method is very physical. I work through the body. Sarah uses her physical techniques as a way of getting actors to spot the hidden clues, as the moments when Shakespeare's verse becomes irregular can often mean something significant is happening. The most fundamental thing you can do with any actor is to get them to tap it out on their chest or to work it through the feet, you know, de-dum, de-dum, de-dum. I mean, really literally almost overdoing it and feel the heartbeat. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to, or to take. Do you see what's doing? What's really interesting? That's really good. That's just caught me out. And that's what it should do. By tapping out the rhythm, Sarah has found a break. And it's at an important moment in the speech or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them. As Hamlet first considers the option of taking arms, taking action, to end his troubles. Or to take arms. Strong beat, weak, weak, strong. So de-dum, 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 de-dum. Dum, de-de-dum, de-dum, de-dum, de-dum. And you go, oh, oh. Hello. 
that's the beauty of doing things physically. It should catch you out. And if it does catch you out, then there's a, an upset in the rhythm. And that tells you there's an upset in, in the emotional state of the character. And that's one of my favourite little tricks in Shakespeare. And what it does is it pulls you up short. It takes you by surprise. It upsets you. It makes you excited. It does all sorts of things. It doesn't always, of course, the, it doesn't tell you, it doesn't always mean the same thing, but it makes you slightly either uneasy or excited or, you know, it's, it's an emotional shift, if that makes sense. The Iambic Pentameter, it's like a series of little stepping stones. You don't need to step on all of them. And if there are little stones, you, you don't because they, you know, you don't need to. You just go for the big ones. Um, and if there's a, a, a series of little ones, then you think, oh, what, what, what was that all about? And if they're beautifully spaced out, you go, oh, I feel very happy in this little bit. I know exactly what I'm saying and why I'm saying it. Whether I'm happy or sad, I know what I'm doing. And as soon as there's an irregularity or a stone's missing... <laughs> Philip Bird is a busy actor in London theatres and also runs drama workshops and coaching sessions for actors at the Globe. He speculates that one reason why the phrase to be or not to be is so memorable lies partly in its rhythm. To be or not to be are probably the most well-known words that Shakespeare ever wrote, along with maybe all the world's a stage and friends, Romans, countrymen. They're the kind of the slogans that are, that are memorable. And I think we remember to be or not to be, like all of the above, it's three beats. To be or not to be. De-dum, de-dum, de-dum. All the world's a stage. Friends, Romans, countrymen. And the thing about three is you've got time to tune in, time to guess where it's going, and then be satisfied when it gets there. The politicians love them, of course. Get Brexit done. Yes, we can. Take back control. You know, Vox Pops in the street, BBC News loved all that. What do you think? Oh, I think we should get Brexit done. And um, that's how orators work likewise. Yes, we can, you know, um, make America great. It, it, it kind of works for us as humans, I think, listening to it. And they end up on the front of baseball caps or, or on the sides of buses. There's another important rhythmic moment in the speech, a short line. And it's another coded direction to the actor from Shakespeare. Looking at the speech... He starts to think about sleep. To die. To sleep. To sleep. Perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. And dreams, the dreamer is not in control. Dreams happen to us. And we are powerless. And then he's thinking. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. Now that line, must give us pause, there's the respect. So we've got our five beats, but it's not da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's shorter than that. And I think that offers the actor the chance to take your time. Must give us pause. And then having done that, he gets a motor on for about the next, oh, eight, ten lines. Stressed last syllables, building up an argument and momentum with the lists of what we put up with if we live and what we might face in this undiscovered country of death. Crucial with verse is there's this underlying rhythm, which is like the heartbeat, and it's also got this line length, which is 
connected with how much we normally say easily on one breath. Two things that are keeping us alive. It's a kind of pattern of us. Giles Block has played Hamlet on stage. He's directed Mark Rylance as Hamlet at The Globe and he's one of the most respected verse consultants to other actors. Everything should be as natural as possible. Shakespeare writes to be as natural as possible, to capture actually how people speak, not how people perform. In the middle of the speech is a long list of the pains of life which we all confront. And Giles sees it as designed specifically by Shakespeare for the globe, with its three tiers of spectators arranged around the actor. I think it could well be that this first phase, there's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time? And then it seems like Shakespeare imagines that Hamlet travels down and on the way down through the tears finds these different professions, if you like, or different uh, types of people. The oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office. Those are the things that uh, probably he himself has not even had to put up with always, but he knows that's what goes on in the world. And the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes. And by this time, perhaps he's reached down towards the groundlings. The six or seven or a thousand people are standing to watch the play. When he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin. Bodkin is, can either be a kind of a big pin, I think, or it can be a dagger. You know, you could imagine if you're looking out into that audience 400 years ago, you'd see someone with a bodkin in their jerkin. And so you've gone from something a little teasing in its vocabulary, there's the respect that makes calamity of so long life up there, which comes down to with a bare bodkin, which is such a wonderfully homely image to finish with. The rules are not hindrances. It's like jazz musicians. You have to be able to play in tune and in time before you can go off and, and be inventive. Actor Joseph Milson harks back to a personal masterclass he had with the great director Sir Peter Hall, in which he learned how to pay attention to the line endings, to ask himself why Shakespeare ends each line of verse where he does. I was a rebellious young actor, and I didn't like the idea of rules at all. I got on very well with Shakespeare, thank you very much, and I didn't need to hear any rules about verse speaking. I'll do this as I see fit and however I feel it, man, is how I went into rehearsals with Peter Hall. And uh, he loved it because, you know, we had arguments and we... But I wasn't getting on with his very prescriptive, you know, observing the end of the written line, not the punctuation, the written line on the page with verse. And I was kind of like, I just sort of claimed stupidity and was ignoring it. And I, but I was getting frustrated and I waited for a moment and said, Peter, I'm really sorry, I'm having trouble. And you can see with, you know, doing the verse the way you want it done. And I don't want to be astrophorous, you know. Can you, and his eyes lit up. He said, would you like a solo call with me? I said, I'd love that. Everyone left the room. It's just me and Peter Hall. Well, which, you know, to my dying day will be one of the greatest things that happened to me he said just we're going to work for a couple of hours and and 
on a few different things from different plays, don't even question it. Just do these few things. And then once you've felt it in your body and your voice and your breath, then we'll discuss it. He said at the end of every single written line of verse. So he said, I want you to press that last word and take the foot off the pedal visually with your hand. I'm, I'm on the second half of To Be or Not To Be Here. So the written line goes, the heartache and the thousand natural shocks, end of line, that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation, end of written line, devoutly to be wished, full stop. Now, if you went to the punctuation, it would go like this. The heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. Makes some sense. It's all good. But if you follow Peter Hall's, then it goes, I'll say what I'm doing. The heartache and the thousand natural shocks rest that flesh is heir to. Don't breathe. Tis a consummation rest devoutly to be wished. Don't breathe. To die, to sleep. Breathe, rest. I used to say to him, but why the hell would I stop on tis a consummation? The sentence is tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. That's what he's saying. He said, yes, but people don't always know what they're going to say. He said, what it feels like as an actor is this, that flesh is heir to tis a consummation. The audience say, what? What is it? Devoutly to be wished. The undiscovered country from who's born. From who's born what? Call out the audience's brain no traveller returns. You give them the answer. And it's just so much more active and you end up in a conversation with the audience more. It's how humans think. We don't always know which word to choose. And that break I just took there, we don't always know which word to choose is what's happening. And it suddenly sounded so modern and it is what people do. You can sit in a queue at a petrol station and hear people doing this. There'll be people listening to this throwing slippers at their phones. But but uh, it doesn't matter because it's so personal. But in performance, that's all I did. And it just feels natural. It's lovely. Those why might I pause there for a millisecond? Oh, because that's quite an interesting word to choose. And it might not be the one the audience expect. And if you just plough through the end of lines... You take away so many little jewels from the experience, so many moments of choosing what to say or surprising yourself um, to die, to sleep, breathe. You know, oh God, it's so exciting. Tess Dignan has worked for many years as voice coach for the RSC and The Globe. Often the actors go, I don't know how to say this, whereas what's exquisite to be able to share with actors is that there is no right, because there is no perfect way of living a life. There is your life and your choices. And in the same way that life is the most wonderful invitation, Shakespeare's writing is the most wonderful invitation for you to connect yourself and your spirit and your life with these words and this moment, and to be brave enough to see what that becomes without any fear that there is an answer that it should be. There is meaning, which is subconscious, which Shakespeare absolutely uses in the language. So even though you do not understand all of the meaning of his words, 
you understand them on a level because of the exquisite nature of their weight and shape and size. Uh, they sit with you. And, and so all of us are inside the plays, walking through this kind of labyrinth maze of exquisite sounds in the text, which do have meaning, but they also have meaning, which is uh, pre-written language meaning, meaning which is inherent in storytelling which is about how sound evokes pictures and shapes and connection. I did some work at the Royal Shakespeare Company and we worked with a, with a group who performed for autistic children and they were being given a performance of The Tempest. The actors led some young people who were autistic to come onto the stage area with them and to listen and repeat lines. So they would say a line, you know, by your art, my dearest father, and the, 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 the child might say, by your art, and then the person might say, my dearest father, my dearest father, if by your art. And this wonderful repetition, like this beautiful dance happened. And then at some point, quite miraculously, the actor would step back and the, the child would be speaking the words of the play. And suddenly you realise there was this extraordinary handing over of the play to the audience. And afterwards, one of the mothers came up and said she was in tears and she said my child has never spoken before ever and their first words were Shakespeare how does that happen experts like Tess don't just talk about sound and rhythm they'll also talk to the actors they're coaching about the meaning of the words as they work alongside the sound so what would Tess say about to be or not to be if she were coaching actors today? I'm struck by, and this is the conversation we would have, the actors and I would have, we would have a conversation about where we are with this language today. Where's, where is it sitting with us? And if I just say to you, to be or not to be, that is the question. How prophetic does that seem when at this moment in time all theatres are closed and they don't know whether they're going to be or not be? And that is the question. Whoever knew that that's what that line might resonate as in, in at some point in time? Isn't that extraordinary? The, the delicate nature. What I hear people say around me all the time at the moment, Andrew, is, gosh, isn't life fragile? Isn't it absolutely fragile? And we hadn't really quite realised that till, for many, many reasons, this shared experience we're all having. To be or not to be is so fragile in its language. It's so childlike to use such tiny monosyllables when you're talking about the meaning of life. This podcast was started in the depths of the coronavirus lockdown and the contributors all agreed to take part because they wanted to raise awareness for theatres and for actors at a time of crisis due to pandemic to rolling lockdowns and social distancing. If you want to help, theatres like The Globe have donation pages you can visit, and special fundraisers have been set up during lockdown. If you visit the podcast website, you can find some links. Finally, special thanks go to Emma Fielding and Simon Paisley Day, who recorded versions of the speech at home during lockdown. And thanks too to Chris Dyer, Paul Sem 
and Hannah Fiore for their invaluable help and support. Soft you now, the fair Ophelia. Nymph in thy orisons, be all my sins remembered. <laughs>